Welcome to the Contrast Church Podcast. Contrast is located in Grandview, Ohio, with the mission to help people be with Jesus, become like Him, and live out His mission together. For more information on attending our meetings, our missional communities, or giving, visit contrast.church. Well, happy uh, Sunday afternoon, everyone. I hope you're enjoying the warm weather, or maybe not enjoying the warm weather. It's pretty humid out there, uh, truthfully. Um, Yeah, so a couple weeks ago, Trey asked me if I would want to teach, and I thought, well, sure, why not? That sounds like a great idea. And then he assigned me this passage, uh, and (laughs) I was like, thanks, Trey. That's so nice of you. Uh, I don't know, you know how they sometimes say that like teaching is the best way to learn? So I don't know if that's Trey actually giving me a hint that I have some like secret anger or murder problem, but if it is, it means that I'm not doing my job right because he's on to me. Uh, <laughs> no, but yeah, I, I've been thinking about this passage and what to say about it, and the truth is I... I've been feeling like, what more is there to say about it? It seems pretty straightforward, especially for us as Christians and even, honestly, in our secular culture, we all pretty much have a universal understanding that murder is a bad thing. Um, and I think for most of us, hopefully, uh, we would say, yeah, we actually like have the not murdering people thing like down pretty well. Uh, it's not necessarily like an issue that we struggle with. But in this particular passage, the don't murder or be angry part is the section that I think is a little bit trickier for us. Uh, And I know it's definitely been tricky for me. And I honestly think like, you know, Jesus, I'm not, I get it. I, I won't go out and kill people, hopefully. I think that that's something that isn't super hard for me to not do, because that's a pretty extreme action, right? But not to be angry? Like, I feel like that is maybe a little unreasonable. Like, how can we go through life without feeling anger? It's, it's an emotion that we have. In fact, I would say right now, it's an emotion that we're all experiencing as one of the primary emotions that we have um, in our culture. And truthfully, I think that us kind of approaching this, this idea of not being angry and saying, That's, that seems a little bit odd. I don't, know how, I don't know how you expect me to do that. I honestly think that that's the way that we're supposed to feel because I think that that is exactly the same way that people listening to Jesus at the time would have felt. I don't think we're much different from them or as different from them as we think we are. I think that they would have felt nearly the same way. So let's read what it says. In, in the first verse, in, in verse 21, it says, You have heard that it was said. Now, for the, Jesus is going to open these sections with the same phrase, You have heard that it was said. And, and there's six different sections that he gives. This is the first one of it. So this is the first um, of these examples that Jesus teaches us. And we're going to be, obviously, in this uh, passage for a while. I'm terming this the hot sermon summer. Um, (laughs) 
Trey did not approve. Uh, he hasn't approved that, but I'm just going to do it. So, hot sermon summer. We're in it. Um, <laughs> we're in it. So he's going to say that phrase again. You have heard that it was said. Now, for us, that Jesus, what he's saying is basically like, you know the law. You know the law. It would be really similar to him like saying today to us, like, oh, you know that when you get in a car, you need to buckle your seatbelt. Like, click it or tick it, bud. Like, if you don't do that, you're going to get in trouble, right? So he's not saying anything special here. It's just, you, have, you, you know what standard you are expected to live by right now. And specifically, what he says about the law, he says what you know about the law is you've heard that you can't murder. Now, what he's referencing here, of course, uh, is one of the Ten Commandments. The first one, uh, the reference in Exodus 20, 13, says you shall not murder. That same commandment is then repeated in Deuteronomy 5, 17, where it says you must not murder. Then he says, whoever murders will be subjected to judgment. So him saying you'll be subjected to judgment, of course, is the same way, again, that we would say, well, if you kill someone today, you're probably going to be jail, go to jail, or in some places, potentially be killed, be executed for that. You're going to pay a price for your crime. So, at this point, I think people, the people listening to Jesus are probably like totally vibing with him. They're like, yeah, okay, like, we, we get what you're saying. Because what he's doing is he's affirming his position of the law. He's saying, hey, you've heard the law, and this is what it says. And uh, as Trey mentioned in last week's uh, message, Jesus spent uh, a bit of time arguing his position as not being here to abolish the law. So what he's doing is he's saying, like, this is another example of here's the law as it exists, and, like, I'm here for it. The interesting thing is that Jesus doesn't necessarily stop there. He doesn't say, this is the law, and this is what it says, and that's great. But he takes it a step further. And he says this phrase, but I say to you. Again, another phrase that he's going to pattern after in these next couple of, of um, passages. And so he's now creating his own standard around the law. And this may seem a little bit odd for us, like why, why, what authority does he have to do this? But this actually was not a super uncommon practice in, in ancient Jewish teaching. Uh, it was accepted and actually it was done quite often that Jewish teachers would strengthen the requirements of the law. They were allowed to do that. What they weren't allowed to do was weaken the requirements of the law. And often these teachers would create sort of perimeters uh, around the law that were stricter so that they could avoid approaching the law and accidentally breaking it. Um, so again, for us, it might be, okay, if today our law says, like, you can't murder someone, we might say, you can't hit someone, which is actually true. You can't, I don't, you can't assault people, so don't do that. But, you know, like, at the time, it's, it's, it's taking something that's a lesser version of that action and saying, now we're going to teach you that that's the standard that you should live by uh, as a way to protect the core standard of the law. So right now, the question that everybody has and that I think that we should have is 
where is Jesus going to place this perimeter? He says, you have heard the law, but I say, so we know he's going to to put his standard on it, but where? And that's where he says, but I say to you that anyone who is angry with a brother will be subjected to judgment, and whoever insults a brother will be brought before the council, and whoever says fool will be sent to fiery hell. Now here he's giving us three parallel scenarios. I I don't view these as necessarily like separate things that are escalating in any sort of way, but that they are three ways to say the same thing, right? If you are angry with a brother, you will be subjected to judgment. Again, that judgment is based on their current law, so the punishment that you would receive for being angry with a brother would be the whatever a court determines at that time. When it says you'll be brought before the council, the council that's being referred to is the Sanhedrin, which is actually the Jewish Supreme Court, equivalent to like a Jewish Supreme Court. So it's the highest like group of Jewish law experts that judge cases based on the Jewish law. In fact, that's the same court that Jesus is later tried in front of. And then, of course, this last one is, I think, the most extreme. If, I, I would think that you would probably agree with that, where it says, uh, and whoever says fool will be sent to fiery hell. And I, I thought about this a lot, and it's like, man, this just seems like really inflammatory. And I, I, th- I actually think that this is a rhetorical device that Jesus is using to demonstrate his seriousness toward it because he's taking what could be considered the, the lightest offense, just calling someone a name out of indignation. Like, I, I do that all the time. <laughs> Honestly, like, as I've been reading this, I've really become kind of convicted about stuff because I was, you know, it's like, I, if I'm driving my car, road rage is probably where we all experience this the most because you're driving in your car and you're like, what are you doing, you idiot? Like, move. Like, why are you... And as I was thinking about that, I was like, that phrase, like what I just said, is exactly what is being referred to here. He's saying, whoever says fool will be thrown into fiery hell. And it's like, whoa, he's telling me that this like lightest thing that I do probably every day is worthy of the most severe punishment that's possible. And it's through these parallel stories that Jesus, I think, is doing something really radical and honestly really unexpected. Because, again, at the time, the law that is governing the land is the law that Jesus is, is talking about. And it's, it's a law that bears real punishment if you should break it. If you disobey the law, you're going to get fined, you're going to go to prison, or you're going to be killed, whatever degree. And that's so similar to what we experience here, right? Like, if you break the law, if you get a parking ticket, you have to pay the ticket. If you rob somebody and you get caught, uh, you are going to go to a court and go to jail. But what he's saying is that although the current law 
governs our external behavior, the things that we can do or say. Jesus is putting a standard on it that says, now you can actually be judged and receive punishment for your internal world. And honestly, I think that him saying that would have been, like, just so shocking. Um, and as, again, as we, th- like, think about it for a second for us, I keep trying to, like, bring it back to, like, what does this look like for us today? Because I think that's really important. Because sometimes it's like, oh, the, the Jews in ancient Palestine, like, had something, and we don't really know anything about what that was like, so it doesn't, like, it's hard for us to connect it. But I have to think about, like, what, what if tomorrow... Congress like passes a, a law that says you, you can't have a mean thought. And if you do have a mean thought, the police are going to show up to your house and drag you to court, and you're going to stand trial for it. And all of us, I think, would go, like, that's insane. Like, that doesn't make any sense. And that's not even possible. Like, what, how could you possibly enforce that? And what court would ever hear that argument? What court would ever be able to like prove what you thought or felt? But that, I think, is exactly the point. And this is what is just like so beautiful to me about what Jesus is doing here, because he's not actually applying a new standard of the law to us as earthly citizens. He's applying a new standard of the law to us as citizens of heaven, He's showing us what life should and can look like as members of his kingdom. In fact, he's giving us an ideal. He's giving us the perfect standard. And if you remember back toward when we started um, our study in Matthew, Trey said, you know, what, what is basically the central theme of Matthew? And he said, well, the, the biggest theme of Matthew is repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Well, this is an example of Jesus bringing the kingdom near because he's saying like, oh, you want to be a part of it? Well, this is, this is what it's going to look like. And he's basically telling us that in heaven, the heavenly court is going to judge all offenses of the heart. The heavenly court is going to be able to put you on trial for the things that you think or feel. And so our behavior internally becomes really important. And as I thought about that, again, the, the question became, well, what is the heart? And like, why does, why does Jesus care about the heart? What, why, does, why is Jesus even concerned about this? Like this, the law was given to the ancient Israelites by God himself, like, why is it now all of a sudden that Jesus is, like, concerned about the heart, the way that people uh, feel and in their intentions? Well, to the ancient Jews, the heart was actually, like, the center of the human experience. Obviously, today, uh, we know the heart as, like, an organ that pumps blood, but to them, they viewed the, the idea of the heart as the center of the physical, uh, spiritual, and intellectual existence, and often we actually still use that comparison. Um, like if you say, oh, I have a broken heart, you don't mean your heart like doesn't work. You just mean like you're emotionally distressed or hurt. 
Um, and so in many ways, we actually still use the idea of the heart to describe the, the, the core, the central point of the human experience. And so because of that, the heart is actually the home of everything that we can think, everything that we can feel, everything that we can do, any external behavior that we can actually do, which is what the original law is concerned about, or actually originates in the heart. And here, I think another thing that Jesus is, is really getting at is it's not enough to just focus on the symptoms, but we actually have to root out like the evil that lives inside of us. It's not enough to just say anymore, like, yeah, don't kill people. But we know that killing people, if you rewind time, originates in our heart. And we know that this makes sense, I think. It feels logical. To steal actually Trey's house analogy from last week, too, I, I was thinking, like, what, what house could there, you could just have an uncontrolled fire in, like, a room, and you would expect that it wouldn't eventually burn down the whole house? Or, like, if you had an apple, sometimes you get apples, and uh, I don't actually know if this ever really happens, but it seems like it would. It seems like it makes sense. Like, you have an apple that looks, look, looks really nice on the outside, but you, like, bite in, and it's, like, gross on the inside. Uh, like, what apple could you have that wouldn't eventually show the rot that exists on the out inside, on the outside, right? You can't, you can't have it. And that's why Jesus is so concerned about it. In fact, as Craig Keener says in his commentary on Matthew, he says that anger that would generate murder, if unimpeded, is the spiritual equivalent of murder, and in fact, again, this, this concept doesn't always seem new to us if we've been in church for a while because this is something that we have talked about a lot. And in fact, the, the next coming examples in the coming weeks are all going to do the same thing, that it's not just about the action that takes place, but it's the intention behind it. And in this particular case, anger that would generate murder, if unimpeded, is the spiritual equivalent of actual murder. And a hard truth, I think, for us to wrestle with in our hearts. Because again, as most of us would experience, I think we live in a world where we say, I am not a murderer. Like, I, wouldn't, I would never do that. I, I couldn't hurt anyone. But we are all closer to being murderers than we think. We're all just a few steps if we let stuff form in our hearts. In fact, Jesus, in this passage, actually tells us that we're already murderers because we all have already experienced anger in our hearts. And in some ways, I think that if we can't take control fully of our hearts, we are heading down a path of destruction, which we'll get to in just a second what that means.
But the big question is, is Jesus saying that I can't feel anger? Uh, because part of it is like, well, anger is an emotion and I feel it and I can't always control it. So what, is, like, what does that mean? Is anger bad? What if I'm angry at something that like, I sh- should be angry at? Like, you know, the injustices in the world that I see. And so I actually don't think that it is fully just, you can't ever experience anger at all, period. In fact, some translations uh, actually qualify that first section, verse 21. They'll say, whoever is angry with a brother without cause. So they're, they're putting a little thing on there to say, oh, you, you can be, don't be angry unless you have a reason to be, right? Now, the NET version that we actually use here doesn't include that qualifier. Um, and it's reasonable to think that Jesus probably didn't use that qualifier when he was originally teaching, um, and that he wanted to keep it as broad as possible because his purpose was really to bring light to the state of people's anger and the consequences that exist if we don't address it. But it's reasonable now to understand that Jesus' prohibition of anger is more of a general principle. And part of that comes from the fact that we know that God himself expresses anger in the Bible. And in fact, later in Matthew, Jesus calls the Pharisees a brood of vipers, which I think is much more severe language than just saying fool to somebody. So in, in his own way, it's like, oh, did, he, did, you just like break your own, did you just break your own law there? The difference is that God's, and by extension, Jesus's anger is always rooted in justice, in righteousness, and in grace. It's never rooted in malice, which often our anger is actually rooted in malice. In fact, if you look at the, uh, the part where he calls the Pharisees a brood of vipers, he's doing so actually to call out their abject state of moral failure. He, he's not doing it because he hates those people. He's actually doing it because he loves them. And he's saying, I need to tell you where you are at so that you can figure this out and come back to the truth. So he's doing it out of love. There's also another term in there, of course, which is brother, which a lot of us say, well, what does it mean to say, oh, you can't be angry with the brother? Again, at the time, to the Jews, saying somebody is a brother would have just been in reference to any fellow Jew. So basically what Jesus is saying here is, Anyone who is angry with a fellow Jew uh, will be subject to judgment. Of course, for us today, I think that it is not just a fellow Jew. In light of the non-Jewish population being invited into the gospel of Jesus, we now have an understanding that it can't possibly be just the Jews that it's referring to. But instead, for us, that what this means is any person In fact, I uh, am hard-pressed to find any evidence in biblical text that we are somehow allowed to act out in anger toward people simply because they're not Christians. Actually, I think that that's the opposite. We're called to go out of our way to love the people more who are not Christians. And remember that we're now citizens of heaven, as God has just demonstrated by his new call of the law, And that comes with a higher calling. So for us today, that means that we, again, are set with a higher standard. 
that it's not just about who's in our group, but it's about everyone on earth that God loves and cares about deeply. Now, if you do break his new standard and you hold anger towards somebody in your heart, he actually tells us what to do about it. He says, so then if you bring your gift to the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your gift. Reach agreement quickly with your accuser while on the way to court or he may hand you over to the judge and the judge hand you over to the warden and you will be thrown into prison. And I tell you the truth, you will never get out of there until you have paid the last penny. Now, most Jews actually traveled a really long distance. I mean, we're talking like days or weeks worth of travel to get to the altar to place their gift there. So imagine like you, you it's, it's a hard, you probably have like mules or donkeys or something. I, I don't know, just trying to pick, you know, paint an accurate picture of the time. And it's very hot and you've trudged for days and weeks and then you finally get there and you're like, I'm going to worship God. And you like put your gift down and then you're like, oh shoot, I said something mean to my neighbor. What God is telling you to do is actually like, you can't present that gift. Like you have to like turn around and go all the way back to where you came from to reconcile that relationship. And that is crazy again. Because who would have thought that for such a small thing that it's worth this huge effort to fix? It's again demonstrating just how serious he's taking this idea of us removing anger from our hearts. Then the last part, the story of what it looks like to um, basically appease an accuser of yours on the way to court lest you be thrown into prison, uh, is really a metaphor for our own relationship with, with God, too, right? It's an allusion to what state we would live in, being thrown into uh, an eternal prison, should we not be able to follow the, the laws and the teaching that Jesus is placing in front of us. And this point right here, I actually think is him, Jesus, pointing toward one of his greatest commandments that he brings later in Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine, which is to love our neighbors as ourselves. He's actually demonstrating that we are able to love God through loving other people. And this is really important. On the flip side, we are able to damage our relationship with God when we damage our relationship with others. Our relationships between other people and our relationships with God are directly linked. In fact, in 1 John 4.20, he says, if anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his fellow Christian, he is a liar, because the one who does not love his fellow Christian, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. We have a very, very close connection between the way that we interact with each other and the way that reflects on our relationship with God. 
Now, if you're anything like me, again, this gets to the point where you go, okay, like I understand the mechanics of this verse. I understand the mechanics of this passage. But like, why? Like, why does this matter? Why should we be concerned about it? What are we supposed to do with it? And I, I just keep thinking that this whole narrative that he's painting and all of the inflammatory kind of crazy things that he starts to say to these people and this new standard of the law that he applies is pointing toward the most poignant and powerful moment in the history of the universe. Because at this point, Jesus, like, he knows that humans have already miserably failed trying to obey the law as it was before. So what expectation could there be that, like, something is going to be different with this new, like, harder version of it? And in fact, now he's just, like, made it impossibly hard. And I actually, like, don't, I don't think that that's hyperbole. I, th I think that Jesus makes it impossible, and I think he knows full well that it's impossible. Because his insistence that we somehow take full control over our hearts, right, this idea that if we can't control our hearts, we're going to go down a path of destruction. His, his assumption that, like, hey, you've got to do something about it, and our reaction of, like, this is too much, like, I, we're, like, we're going to fail, you're setting us up for failure, right? It's, it's because that insistence is only possible by what he does next. Because in the midst of this like crazy, impossible call, he's going to do something else impossible. He is going to die on a cross. The God of the universe is going to be hung on a cross that we built with our own anger in our hearts. And then as we actually murder him, he's going to look down on us and say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He gives us an impossible standard of the law because he already knows that he's going to pay the price for our failure to obey it. The immutable, almighty, always existing God of the universe is going to give up his life to redeem the very relationship that we so badly screwed up. And because of our disobedience, he's going to die. But, this is always the good news in, in these types of sermons because we know what Jesus did. It's like, ah, but... But through his death, we're actually given a heart transplant. And he takes our old, gross, dirty, anger, murder-filled heart, and he replaces it with a new heart that beats with the blood of Jesus. And guess what? That heavenly court that judges us based on our intentions and the offenses of our heart, when we go before it, what does it say? The court says, I see no offenses here because the only thing I see is the heart of Jesus. And that heart is sinless and it's spotless and it's perfect. 
That new heart affords us a citizenship into his kingdom, and it's a kingdom where there is no anger, and there is no murder, and there is no hate, there's no sexism, or racism, or torture, or rape, or any of the horrible things that other humans can do to other people. And there's no place for those things in his kingdom. And Jesus, here in Matthew, on this Sermon on the Mount, gives us six very real, tangible examples, anger today, and then later, adultery, divorce, oaths, retaliation, and love for enemies, as tangible paths to actually change the world. Because the truth is, without Jesus, we're, we're not really able to take full control of our hearts, but Jesus still, nonetheless, places a standard on us, one that we should pursue. And as we do so, we're allowing the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom that Jesus is now the king of, to break through and to actually have real transformative power on earth. And for us, I think that begs the question like, well, what does it look like for us? What does it look like for us today, tomorrow, this week, this next month, this next year, to actually like not hold anger in our hearts, inside? What does that look like? What, is it, what does it look like for you to be just radically patient and forgiving of your roommates and your friends and your spouses and your coworkers? What would it look like for you to call up your family member who you haven't talked to in forever and forgive them without their apology? What would it look like for us to take a really, truly active step in, again, reconciling these relationships that we have with other people? And I think Jesus is saying that if we pursue these standards we have the capability to flip the human existence and all of the terrible things that we're capable of doing along with that on its head. Because, the truth is, Jesus cares about the smallest little pieces of anger, the smallest slivers of hate in our heart, because he says that he cares about the smallest jot and tittle of the law. And he knows that when we place our anger and we place even the just smallest little bits of hate and grossness that we have in his hands, he has the power to take it away. Jesus is inviting us to usher the kingdom of God into existence right here and right now, one little shred of anger at a time. Now, as the band comes up, we're going to have a time of reflection and communion. If you don't have one of these cups there in the back, you can grab them. And I just kind of want you to think about what this new calling, this new perimeter that Jesus has placed on the law and therefore on us means. The call not to just avoid murder or violence toward other people, but the difficult call to root out anger and hate in our hearts and wherever we might find it in our lives. And also think about 
how by the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross and the gift of the Holy Spirit, our hearts, your hearts, could be fundamentally and eternally transformed. Thank you for listening to the Contrast Church Podcast. To learn more about us and how you can be a part of it, visit contrast.church.